Well, I want to take just a moment for us to remember where we are in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. We are in a section that is chapter 11 to chapter 14, which form a section in which Paul addresses the gathered worship of the church. That's the background. That's the setting of all of the things that he talks about. And in chapter 11, he talked about headship in the church, reminding us that the head of every man is Christ. And then he talked about the Lord's Supper. It is about partaking in the body and blood of Christ. Chapter 12 begins Paul's answer about the grace gifts in the church. And he anchors them in the lordship of Christ and in the common good of the whole body. And he follows that by the truth that the church is one unified body of many indispensable members equal in honor. And in chapter 13, Paul instructs the church to love one another well. This is the still more excellent way for believers to live and for the church to live. God is love, so the body of Christ is to be marked by love. And only after all of that, laying all of that groundwork, especially the idea that we are a body characterized by love, does Paul in chapter 14 get to the main event, the showdown between the gift of prophecy and the gift of tongues in verses 1 to 25, which we'll be looking at today. And then next week, Paul's command for the church to worship in a decent and orderly manner in verses 26 to 40, which seems to be the target that Paul is aiming at in this section on the worship in the church. Because as we have seen, when the church in Corinth gathered for worship, they were in disorder. And today's passage is another example of that. This is not an easy passage to understand. As a result, there are many different understandings of it. One of the difficulties that we face is wading through the modern charismatic practices of ecstatic tongues and prophetic impressions. That, that kind of clouds our look as we come to things, and we have to wade through that, which we will do, but not all of it today. This morning, we're not addressing whether the miraculous sign gifts continue or not, although I believe they do not. And I believe that tongues is speaking in a human language that we have not learned. It's not ecstatic utterance. And my interpretation of this passage will, will be in accord with that understanding and that interpretation. Many people read this chapter seeking an instruction manual for the use of the gift of tongues and assume that that's what it is. But that is not what Paul is writing. This is a correction. This is a correction. Paul is addressing yet another problem in the church in Corinth and teaching to correct it. Once again, we don't know what precisely is taking place in the church gathering in Corinth that causes Paul to write about the spiritual gifts in this way that he does. Except that we understand that he is correcting their understanding and their practice of the gifts, especially the gift of tongues which means our takeaway, our big idea for us, is not what the Corinthians are doing, but what Paul is teaching. That's what we want to grab hold of. So let me go ahead and read the first half of this chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 1 to verse 25. 
This is the word of God. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you? Unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching. If even lifeless instruments, such as a flute or a harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what's played? And if a bugle gives indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others, than 10,000 words with a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Or be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues are assigned not for believers but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, an outsider or unbeliever will enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. If you want to follow along on the sermon outline, you'll see this sermon theme, love one another in the worship gathering with intelligible spiritual gifts that build up the local church. I think that's what Paul is saying in a nutshell. That's his teaching in a nutshell. In, in fact, Paul's very first instruction is to pursue love. That's his very first instruction. He's not moving on from the topic of love in chapter 13 as though we can just file that for later. Okay, there was the love thing. Now we're moving on to something different. No, 
this letter has a cumulative effect. Okay, from chapter 1, verse 1, everything is building upon itself all the way to here. Chapter 14 is stacked on top of the previous chapters, especially chapters 12 and 13. The church is one body ruled by love. This colors our understanding of everything that follows, especially what follows here. Chapter 14, then, is not about using spiritual gifts. It is about love in the church as it relates to those spiritual gifts. Pursue love because love is the way. And gifts are things that happen along the way. Remember that Paul is specifically addressing what we would call the corporate worship gathering. That's what he has in mind. And his goal is in chapter 14, verse 40, at the very end, but all things should be done decently and in order. That's kind of where he's heading with this whole section. So when the church gathers, it is to gather in love. And the gifts are to be used for the common good, for the building up of everyone. What is said is to be said intelligibly, and what is done is to be done orderly, which is interesting, isn't it? So order does not work against the Holy Spirit. Rather, orderliness is a mark that the Holy Spirit is present and operating in the church. So first... Pursue the way of love, and then desire the gifts of the Spirit along the way. Should the church desire any particular gifts along the way? Well, you can tell that Paul has already given us some thought. Right out of the gate, he says to desire the gift of prophecy. And the Corinthians' hearts just sink as soon as they read that. Now, you know, this, this shouldn't be a shocker, because at the end of chapter 12... Paul said, desire the higher gifts, which he identified as the word gifts. First apostles, second prophets, third teachers. This letter would have been first read to the Corinthian congregation out loud in one of their worship gatherings, and you can almost audibly hear their disordered gasps and objections. What? Prophecy? What about tongues? Let me say again, that I believe that the grace gift of tongues is the ability to speak a human language, a foreign language that you have not learned. Just as we see it in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. And, and let's be clear, Paul's not against the grace gift of tongues. But there's something happening in the Corinthian church that just isn't right that Paul has to address. And Paul answers their gasps in verse 2. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. Now, throughout the chapter, the tongues that Paul addresses is uninterpreted tongues. We have to get that straight. He doesn't say it all the time, and he doesn't say it every time, but that is the issue. It's uninterpreted tongues. There's no hearer that understands the tongue being spoken, the tongue language being spoken. There are foreign languages that nobody knows or understands, and so their words are unintelligible. It's not a good thing that the people who exercise this gift in the church in Corinth are not speaking to men but God. That's not a good thing. That means that only God knows what they're saying because no one can understand them. In verse 9, Paul says that no one knows what you're saying because all you're doing is speaking into the air. Even those speaking don't know 
what they're saying. Now, remember that Greek manuscripts, they don't have uppercase letters, they don't have punctuation, so English translators have to make an interpretive decision as to whether the spirit in this verse is man's spirit or the Holy Spirit. Obviously, the ESV sees spiritual gifts in this context and translates it as the Holy Spirit. But I think the NESB and others get it right when they say, for no one understands, but in his spirit, he speaks mysteries. Meaning that what he speaks in his spirit is a mystery even to him. The result of unintelligible speaking is that the church is not built up, which is the purpose of the gifts. Uninterpreted tongues, foreign languages spoken but not heard and received by a speaker of the foreign language results in no benefit. But what about verse 4, Scott, where Paul says that the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself? Well, let's think for a moment. Is that a good thing? Is there any instance of the Corinthians building themselves up that Paul thinks is a good thing? I can't find one. Paul is regularly admonishing them not to be puffed up, especially over their gifts, which is exactly what they were doing. And, and that's not a standalone phrase. It's the first half of a comparison. While the one who speaks unintelligible words builds himself up, the one who prophesies builds up the church. It's the comparison that Paul is making. That's what the grace gifts are supposed to do. Paul is comparing and contrasting the gift of tongues with the gift of prophecy. On the one hand, an uninterpreted tongue puts the speaker on display, but that's all. On the other hand, prophecy builds up the church. The one who prophesies speaks to the people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. When the Spirit is present and active in the church, he produces love. And he manifests himself in grace gifts that build up the whole body. He builds up, he encourages, and he consoles everyone as they have need in the body. And that is done through intelligible words that everyone can hear and everyone can understand and everyone can apply. That's why Paul says, it's fine for you if you want to speak in tongues. Paul's not disparaging the legitimate gift of grace of speaking in languages you have not learned. He knows for himself that it's a useful spiritual gift in certain circumstances. But that circumstance is not the church's worship gathering. So he tells them, desire the grace gift of prophecy even more in your worship gathering. Because uninterpreted tongues do not build up, but prophecy does. What's happening in the church with uninterpreted tongues may not be exactly clear to us. We just can't see exactly what's taking place in this church in Corinth and their worship gatherings. But Paul's point is crystal clear to us. It is that the church is to be marked by intelligible communication of the gospel that builds up the whole church. Isn't that relevant to the church today? What do you think? Some churches are not committed to the clear communication of the gospel that builds up the whole body. You know, Paul tells the church in Thessalonica, therefore encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. He says that to the Thessalonians, 
But he does not say that to the Corinthians because that's what they were not doing. Every church needs to hear Paul's words because we are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. And then Paul moves on to stack on top of that four analogies, four illustrations to emphasize his point. Beginning in verse 6. The first analogy is about himself. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will you benefit unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? Well, let's just imagine for a moment that you open your bulletins this morning and you see an announcement that says that the Apostle Paul is coming to preach at Christ Fellowship next Sunday, this coming Lord's Day. Ladies and gentlemen, the Apostle Paul will be here at Christ Fellowship Church. And so the next Sunday comes, and the place is packed. We've got all the chairs out, and I, <laughs> I, get, to, I get to introduce our esteemed speaker uh, this morning, the Apostle Paul. And, and Paul comes up here and puts his hands right here, and he begins speaking to you in a language that not a single one of you understands. And we want our money's worth, so it's, it's, it's a sermon that's well over an hour in length, right? But you receive no revelation by prophecy, you receive no knowledge by teaching, because he was unintelligible, you were not built up, encouraged, or consoled. When I announced that the Apostle Paul is coming back again the following Sunday, how many of you will come back? It's the Apostle Paul. The second analogy is about musical notes. If even lifeless instruments such as a flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what's played? I began playing the trumpet in the sixth grade. My poor parents had to listen to me practice, even down in the basement with the door closed, every night. It wasn't just that some of the notes were bad. It was that some of the notes were not notes at all. Just noise. Just indistinct sounds coming out of a brass tube. And then there was the sixth grade band concert. I mean, that had to be painful even to a loving mother. If my band teacher hadn't announced that we were, we were about to perform Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, nobody would have known. Nobody's ears would have guessed that that was the song being played. Too many unintelligible notes could not be built up into any song whatsoever. The third analogy is a more serious military analogy. Command and control of the military is sounded through the clear and distinct bugle calls. But if the bugler renders an indistinct sound, the soldiers won't know what to do. Some will charge, some will retreat, some will go to the mess hall and sit down for chow. It's dangerous. The fourth analogy is the church in Corinth herself. So with yourselves, Paul says, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. Did you know that there are over 7,000 languages in the world? And each of them may have many distinct dialects. And every one of them has meaning. But if you don't know the meaning of the language, you will be a foreigner to the speaker, 
and the speaker a foreigner to you. Instead of foreigner, some of your translations may say barbarian. You know, that's, that's a word that they use for peoples that live beyond the edge, the boundary of the Roman Empire, beyond civilization, beyond the Greek-speaking world, because when those foreigners talked in their language, it sounded to them like bar, 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 and so they called them barbarians. It's, a, it's an onomatopoeia word. It sort of melds the idea of unintelligible language with uncivilized or unbuilt-up people. They're divided and they're estranged when this happens. So Paul says, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, desire prophecy and strive to excel in things that build up the church. We need to think just a bit about two things, I think, in our own worship gathering. Because that's the, that's the context Paul's addressing. So the first is, is our worship intelligible? Is the gospel intelligible in the things we do when we gather to worship God? Do our songs and our prayers speak the gospel in understandable ways? Does the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, the ordinance of baptism and the preaching communicate the gospel to people who see them and hear them? Because God intends his church to be a place where there is intelligible communication of the gospel. The second thing I think we should just give a second to is to, do we understand that the point of corporate worship is not about me, the individual? It's about us, the body. And I don't mean to create a false dichotomy here as if it has to be one or the other. Quite the opposite. I want to eliminate the dichotomy and fuse together us in place in the body. You see, our default setting is to behave as individuals in groups. But Paul says we are first the body of Christ and then individual members thereof. That's the priority of our thinking about ourselves as the church. If you come to church because it feeds your soul and makes you feel better, I'm glad for that. But we need to mature and begin to come to church with concern for others around us being built up because we are a body. Our worship gathering should reveal that we are living the way of love together. That we are building up one another in love together. Next, Paul builds on this idea of intelligibility. It's such a warm and fuzzy word, isn't it? You know, what, a, what an inspiring sermon title. Intelligible worship builds up. But it's so critical here. It's exactly what Paul's going after. Because intelligibility is necessary in order for the gospel content to engage the mind. Aren't we called to believe? Pick up in verse 13. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he interprets. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in a position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? 
If anyone is speaking in a tongue that he does not understand and nobody else understands, Paul says he should pray for the ability to interpret the language he himself is speaking. But what language should he pray in? His own language? Or the tongue language that he does not understand? If he prays in the tongue language, even though he, his spirit, is praying, his mind does not know what he's praying. His mind will be unfruitful. He will be praying mindlessly. So what is he to do? He's not to pray mindlessly. Paul says, I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. And which language will that require? It will require him to pray in his own intelligible language in order for his mind to be engaged. In fact, if Paul is in a worship gathering, he will forego speaking in a tongue language and instead pray in his own language so that he is praying with his mind, singing with his mind, and giving thanks with his mind. Paul's concern is not only for his own mind to be engaged, but for those around him. He includes, he includes you in this role play. If you give thanks, he says, with your spirit, but not with your mind, meaning in a tongue language that's not interpreted, the person worshiping next to you can't even amen what you're saying. Because his mind cannot engage with your unintelligible worship. You would, in effect, be worshiping alone in a room full of fellow believers. How's that for a picture of love? Paul allows that your tongue, in your tongue language, you may even be giving thanks well enough. Who knows? Even so. Nobody in the body is being built up. Pick up in verse 17. For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Paul does not speak in tongue languages in the worship gathering. Where does he say that? Well, when Paul says, nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct than 10,000 words with a tongue, that is an idiomatic way of saying, I don't speak in tongues in church. And neither should you. Now remember, Paul is addressing uninterpreted tongues. Where would Paul speak in tongues if he received that grace gift? I mean, it's a, it's a fair question because he says that he speaks in tongues more than all in the church in Corinth. That's quite a disclosure to the people in Corinth. You know, an, an educated guess would be that the apostle to the Gentiles met many people on his many travels to many places and had the grace gift of tongues then for the purpose of evangelism and engaging foreign people in foreign languages. It's, it's just a reasonable thing to think, much like at Pentecost. Paul might have opened his mouth to speak to his foreign hearers, heard him, proclaimed the gospel in their own language, and that would be a direct fit with the gift of tongue languages that we understand in the New Testament. But what was going on with the gift of tongues in the church in Corinth? We just don't know precisely. But a few things come to mind. That The specific issue is that there is no hearer, there is no interpreter 
of these language being spoken. Which is interesting. Why is there no hearer? Why has the Spirit manifested himself in the gift of a language and not manifested himself in the gift of a hearer who can understand? Why no hearer? We wonder about the legitimacy of things taking place in the Corinthian church. I'm not trying to lean too hard here. I am trying to say this. We have been through nine arguments now of illegitimate things that have been going on in the Corinthian church. Let's just pick one. The Lord's Supper. Is the Lord's Supper a good thing? Yes, the Lord's Supper is a good thing. Is it a legitimate ordinance? Yes, it's a legitimate ordinance. How are the Corinthians doing with it? They were handling it illegitimately and out of order. It was disordered. It was so bad that many of them were going ill and some were dying. They were a disordered church in the ways that they handled things. What's going on in the Corinthian church? I don't know. But I don't think that we should come to this text and assume that the gift of tongues and languages in the church was being handled well. We should assume that it's disordered, Paul does, at least. And so, while we don't know, we shouldn't assume that, oh, they were doing this wonderfully, they just needed to take time and take, take turns about it and everything would be fine. But the thing that Paul presses on is unintelligibility. Here's the problem, and it's a basic problem. And yet, even though Paul, even though Paul has pushed and been hard on him, what are you doing? You have a man who's, who's, uh, who's committing incest in your church and you're arrogant. And he yells at them and he says, get him out of the church. That he might be eventually restored. Paul's actually very pastoral in this passage. Paul is handling this disorder in the church very pastorally. He's not talking doctrinally. He's not establishing new gifts and what they are. He's speaking ecclesiologically. He's talking about church things and how we do them. That's the level at which he's teaching. And he's and he says a lot of things rhetorically. Yeah, you, you must be speaking to God because God only knows what you're saying. Nobody else does and you're speaking into the air. He's not establishing a separate language to speak to God with. Can't you speak to God already? Of course you can. He's not speaking doctrinally. He's, he's making arguments along the way to teach them about how we should do things together in the church in love such that people are built up. That's what this passage is about. And it's kind of like when he, when he answered the question they wrote to him about meat being sacrificed to idols. Remember, we just said, Paul, please just say yes or no. <laughs> eat the meat, don't eat the meat. Please just tell us. No, he goes on for three chapters because he wanted to teach them not to serve themselves, but to do all to the glory of God. <laughs> he wasn't that concerned about the meat. He was concerned about the church here. Instead of saying yes or no, well, Paul, tongues are not tongues. He doesn't say yes or no. He spends three chapters teaching them about the church with no real instruction about the gifts at all. What's important is that they know they are one body and they love one another and that the clear gospel proclamation is what is required of their worship gatherings. That's what matters. 
What is clear is that Paul expects intelligible things to be done in the worship gathering that engage the mind and build up the church. And he mentions four things that he expects the church to be zealous about in their worship gathering. They should be zealous about praying and singing and giving thanks and giving instructions all with their mind engaged. We are to bring our minds to spiritual things. We ought not be mindless in the church or do mindless things and call it worship to God. That's why the things that happen in the church should happen intelligibly. Every language has meaning. So we're to speak in the language that communicates meaning and content so that everyone here can say, Amen. Whether tongues is involved or not, isn't this relevant to the church today? Are most modern worship gatherings organized to engage the mind or to engage the emotions? People say, life is hard, I feel bad, I'll go to the church and they'll make me feel better. And so the church responds to those people in the culture by committing to make people feel better. And so the church becomes psychological and therapeutic, saying, Jesus wants you to feel better and function better. Because the church is all about happy individuals. I think we see a lot of that today. People don't feel happy when you push meaningful content their way. They prefer music and messages that meet them where they're at and give them a break from their daily reality and manufacture positive emotion. And they will then equate those positive emotions with the presence of the Spirit. Oh no, that's not right. Their worship gatherings have missed the mark. What they are doing is actually, even though everybody speaks the same language, unintelligible. Your worship is unintelligible if the result is you being placated as an individual. Intelligible worship engages the mind with the truth of God and the gospel of Christ. The presence of the Spirit is marked by an intelligible gospel that informs the mind so that we think rightly. In 12.1, Paul wrote, Now concerning the spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. We want our minds to be informed. You know the Spirit is present not when it's all about you and your personal worship experience and your personal worship expression, with the result being that you are built up in your individualism. No, you know the Spirit is present when the whole church is being built up and encouraged and consoled. That's the sign of the Spirit's presence. And it's the gift of prophecy not tongues, that builds up that way. Back to Paul in verse 20. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. 
And the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are not a sign for believers but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers but for believers. Notice that Paul is still hammering on the need for intelligibility in the church. Instead of saying, use your mind, he says, in your thinking. He's still right on the same course. Don't be childlike in your thinking. Think like a grown-up. Be mature in your thinking. He's instructing them to restrain themselves from speaking in uninterpreted tongues in the worship gathering, but to put forward the upbuilding gift of prophecy instead. Be infants with respect to evil, Paul says. You know, infants, infants have no... You know, they have no history of engaging evil. They have no experience with history. They're, 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 they're innocent of evil. That's what Paul's saying. Be like that with respect to evil. Be innocent of evil. Be an amateur. Okay? Be an amateur when it comes to evil, not a professional. The way a baby is. But be mature in your thinking about the gifts in public worship. Public worship is not a childish thing. Your insistence on building yourselves up individually by speaking in unintelligible languages is childish, Paul says. Speaking in tongue languages in the worship gathering is not good. Indistinct speaking can have distinctly negative effects, which is why Paul goes to Scripture in Isaiah chapter 28 to show that. Isaiah chapter 28 is a sermon and a half on top of an already long sermon. So I can't exactly do that this morning, but we can summarize Paul's application of that. Paul quotes Isaiah chapter 28, verses 11 and 12, referring to an incident in Israel's past when the people heard a foreign language that they did not understand. And that foreign language was the sound of the Assyrian army coming to conquer and exile them because they have not believed God's word. They're being exiled because of their unbelief. Now there's more to the story to that, but here are the key elements. That the congregation of Israel refused to hear the clear and intelligible words of God spoken by the prophet of Isaiah to them. And that the sound of an unintelligible foreign language was the sound of judgment upon them. Those are the two elements. Now, the tricky part is how Paul applies this to the congregation in Corinth in verse 22. We want to simplify the logic of verse 22 and say that the gift of tongues helps unbelievers while the gift of prophecy helps believers. But that is not how Paul is applying Isaiah chapter 28 to the church. Paul is saying that hearing foreign tongues is not a help to believers gathered because it is a signal of judgment on unbelievers gathered like unbelieving Israel. At the same time, words spoken in an unintelligible language are of no help to unbelievers either. On the other hand, prophecy which is the divine revelation of God's word being proclaimed, is not a help to those who won't believe, 
but it is of great help to those who do believe and to those who will believe. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. So, while the legitimate use of legitimate gift of tongue languages is good, because it is a manifestation of the Holy Spirit for the common good, just like deciding whether it's a good idea to eat meat that has been previously sacrificed to idols or not, you have to be mature in your thinking and decide if it's good or not good to speak uninterpreted tongue languages in the gathered worship. So the Corinthians need to be mature in their thinking about how to use the gifts in the worship service. They need to put away their childish thinking and their childish ways and their childish speaking. Paul looks at Scripture and says that unintelligibility in the worship gathering can be harmful to unbelievers who come to the worship gathering. But prophecy, on the other hand, can only help. Pick up in verse 23. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and an outsider or unbeliever enters, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophecy and unbeliever, but if all prophecy and an unbeliever, excuse me, let me say this one more time. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he will be convicted by all. He is called to account by all, and the secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. You see, the Corinthians thought that if we would if we would just use this gift, even if it's not being interpreted, it's going to show that the Spirit's among us. Look how spiritual we are. Look what this, we have this outrageously flashy gift of speaking languages that we've never learned. And if we would do that, everybody will look and go, oh, that means that God's among them. But that's not what happens. And so Paul takes them to, takes these two ideas of gifts to their extremes. Okay, Corinthians, what if your dream came true? And every person in the church spoke in tongues. That's uninterpreted tongues. And an unbeliever walks in. The unbeliever would say, they don't know what they're saying. And they don't know what each other are saying. And I don't know what they're saying. They're out of their minds. There's not a God here except the God of chaos. So here's Paul's comparison. See, they, they walk away because the gospel is unintelligible in that church. Here's Paul's comparison. What if all then prophesied? What if everybody in the church prophesied and an unbeliever walked into the church gathering? He would hear the word of God. And all of the word would convict him of his sins against God and his need for a Savior. And all of the Word would lead him to turn to God and repent of his sins against God. Dear friends, have you heard this clear word of the Gospel? That Jesus took upon himself the sins of others. And nailed to the cross, he experienced the wrath of God upon himself for their sins, so that the wrath of God would not fall upon them. And that if you would believe in this one, this Savior, this sacrifice who bore the curse in our place, you would not bear that curse. You would not die, but you would live. See? 
Have you heard that? Is it clear to you? Is it understandable to you? Has your heart been laid bare, Paul says, before your eyes so that you see the secrets of your own heart the way God sees them? Has that happened to you? Have you seen it? Have you seen the sin you need to confess? Have you seen the dirt and the transgressions that you did on purpose and loved and that they offended the holy God who gave you life? And then what you're really supposed to do is to have your life and have your being and walk in him. Have you heard that? Do you understand that? Do you rightly see God's love this morning? God loved you in this way. He sent his son to die so that all who would believe in him would not die, but have life. And the very love of God within them. That's the word That's the prophetic word. That's the truth of God, gospel word that all need to hear and come to be saved. Fall before him. Humble yourself before God this morning. He's your maker. Receive mercy instead of judgment. By faith, receive the free gift of eternal life and have the perfect love of God within you. The love that never fails and never ends. Come on. Everybody wants to be loved with a love that way. You see, it's the love of God that really matters, not the gifts. Have a little perspective. It's knowing Christ that really matters. And that comes by the clear, intelligible proclamation of the gospel among the people of God. Paul says that's how we know that God is among us. That's what he says. This is how you know that God is among this church. The intelligible, clear proclamation of the gospel that builds up and and encourages and consoles where needed. This chapter is not an instruction manual on the gift of tongues. It's the application of the gift of God's love that we are to live out in our worship gatherings. That's what it is. That we are to be patient and kind, not envious or boasting. Our loving worship casts out arrogance and rudeness. We don't fall into irritable thoughts or resentful attitudes when we're in worship. Rather, we rejoice in the truth. And we know that truth because it is intelligible. And it builds up and encourages us and even comforts us as we have need. Pursue love because love is the way and enjoy the gifts along the way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are amazed that you would be so patient with us in our worship gathering. We're not immune to distraction. We're not immune to thinking well of ourselves. We're not immune to having attitudes of resentment that have built up over time, irritability that have built up over time, and yet you are patient with us and you instruct us. 
to love one another in the worship gathering. And so, Father, we want to make preeminent in the worship gathering the clear proclamation of the gospel of your love because we want the Spirit to move in us and to build us up so that we would be your believing and thankful people this morning. And that's our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.